Sans Pants Radio, Australia's least coherent podcast network. Hey, what's up? It's Thomas Nicholas, uh, also known as Kevin from American Pie. And when I'm not going the growl, which I think is better known as the tongue tornado, I'm listening to the total reboot with Cam and Alexi. back to a very special edition of Total Reboot that I like to call Total Reboot Up Late. <laughs> this is an adults-only edition of the podcast because mm-hmm. today we're talking about a very adults-only film. Hi, I'm Cameron James. <laughs> and today I'm joined, of course, as always, by Alexi Teleopoulos. Alexi, how are you today? Cameron James, let me tell you, I am extremely horny today as this is the up late edition of Total <laughs> Reboot, the only podcast on the internet about movies and more specific than that, the only podcast on the freaking internet that discusses reboots, remakes and ripoffs in cinema, baby. Especially ones that are adults only. Such Mm. as today's episode. And this, much like those adults-only episodes of The Simpsons, is scintillating, titillating, and sexy. (laughs) It is indeed. (laughs) We are, of course, talking about Body Double uh, by Brian De Palma. This is part of our Stuck Indoors Film Festival. So far, we've talked about Rear Window. Yes, of course, the original classic by Alfred Hitchcock. We have talked about, what was the next one, Disturbia? Disturbia, of course, the classic by director DJ Wicker Wicker Caruso, <laughs> starring Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> and we've talked about the Aussie flick Road Games. Directed by Australian cult classic director Richard Franklin. And today, as I mentioned, we are discussing the adults-only film Body Double, directed by Mrs. De Palma's husband, Brian De Palma, who... As I mentioned, not too familiar with his work, but I do know his wife and their five daughters quite well. <laughs> yes, you know Mrs. De Palma and her five daughters. And did they come around and watch this flick with you? Because it is a very sexy flick. <laughs> it would not be astray and Brett Iron De Palma might in fact be proud if his wife and daughters were to visit you during this one. <laughs> Sadly, I did watch it alone. Oh, wow. Alone. I was not visited by the lovely lasses, but um, <laughs> but who's to say they won't drop by later on? You never yeah, know exactly. you never know. what can happen on Total Reboot <laughs> Up Late. The sexiest podcast about sexy freaking grubster movies. This is an interesting one for us to talk about because it is the closest that I can relate to being stuck indoors because this man in this film is not stuck indoors by means of broken leg or by means of tracking device on his ankle or by means of being a trucker. He's literally just stuck indoors because he's sad. 
He's sad and an out-of-work actor, much like many people are in this day and age. Anyone that's... This is this is the most relatable one because it is so about a guy in the arts, completely out of work, bored out of his mind, trying to find stuff to entertain himself with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm actually really looking forward to talking about this because I'd never seen it. And I think that I had avoided it for a long time. Largely because of the front cover of the um, VHS and DVD that I would see at the video shop when I was a young man. I'd go up to Video Easy or local video and I would see this cover. It's very distinctive cover. Very you've distinctive. Got, um, you've got a partially nude Melanie Griffith, I believe, on oh, the front who, cover. Cameron, dare I say it, it may just be a body double for this poster. It very well could be a body double. You can't really see her face and you're looking at her through some Venetians mm. and uh, some Venetian blinds and someone, a hand is reaching up, a silhouetted hand, and is pulling one of the blinds down to try and expose more of her. And as a young man, seeing this cover, it made me feel all sorts of feelings um, that I will describe to you in great detail right now. <laughs> yes, okay, we, we're dying to find out what was happening. What was the chemical <laughs> imbalance, how it was bubbling up within you during this? We're dying we're on the edge of our seats, waiting to hear how this happened, and if perhaps Mrs. De Palma and her five daughters came to relieve you in some way of the burden that you were carrying while seeing this beautiful red and black silhouetted poster. But I associate it largely with shame because I remember being caught looking at the cover by my mum and just her going, oh, put that down. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I just, I thought it was something else. I thought it was something else. I thought it was a cartoon or something. So embarrassing. So I've kind of like always associated this movie with guilt and shame. Mm. And then now that I've watched it and... I didn't feel any of those emotions, but I realized that that is also what the movie is about. It's Absolutely. like largely about guilt and shame and repressed sexuality and all that kind of shit. So mm. I think it'll be kind of fun for us to dig into this and maybe dig up some of our own feelings from our pasts. I think so. I think so. I think De Palma is someone for you and I to talk about is an absolute joy for us to discuss on this podcast. We did him back in the day when we talked about Mission Impossible, I think would have been the last mm. time we talked about him. And of yeah. course, Scarface is a remake. We'll cover that one day. The Untouchables, one of our favorite films, Shared, yeah. is a remake of a TV series or a reimagining of the Untouchables TV series. Carrie's been remade. He's someone that, uh, thankfully, we will never run out of options to discuss in this podcast. But I think the reason <laughs> that... Uh, oh, his... isn't Blowout also... Um... Oh, Blowout and Blow Up. Fuck, dude, we yep. should do that almost immediately. I'd love to cover that on here. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. That'd be really fun. But he's one of those guys that he's really fun to talk about in this exact manner because he wears his Hitchcock influence on his sleeve and mm -hmm. he, more so than any other filmmaker apart from maybe Hitchcock himself, uh, Mel Gibson, Quentin Tarantino also wears his psychosis on his sleeve and his fetish <laughs> on his sleeve and uh, and is and is able to create those things like he really shares a lot about uh, about like his turn-ons turn-offs his psychosis his psychology through and makes it extremely cinematic and glorious through like this incredible cinematic language that he employs 
And um, I think he's fascinating for that reason. Like, no one other than Hitchcock captures the sense of voyeurism like mm. De Palma does. Man, if he was any less good a filmmaker, he would be pure shit. Absolutely. His films would be garbage trash. Like Absolute trash. But unfortunately for us, he is incredibly gifted mm-hmm. cinematically. And I don't know if he had a background in as a cinematographer or something, but he he man, he has the best eye. It's like the most interesting films to watch if you're into like, I don't know, cool cinematography. I reckon these are the these are the go-tos. I love Mission Impossible, the original. I think that's one of my favorite movies of all time. As you've already mentioned, Untouchables is one mm-hmm. of our shared Adore films. It. It's crazy that he he's made those two incredibly classy films. Yes, and this one. Yes, but also you can see you can see him in both. You can absolutely see him both. The way that he controls a camera and it never feels out of place for me. Like you know, a lot of the same techniques that he employs in this film and his grubby affair and his kind of eighties over like uh, Scarface. And uh, dressed to kill and blow out, and then you've got Mission Impossible and Untouchables, like you said, and even more recent films. He uses the same cinematic language for all of them. He uses his uh, his um, split dioptic, where something is in focus in the foreground and something in the background is also in focus. He uses those techniques all the time, and every single time, it never feels out of place. It just goes. It just feels like the absolute natural language. It's always cool to me. Always cool. Hey, we're getting we're getting carried away. Why don't we dive into it? Oh, let's do it, baby. Speaking of carried, he directed that movie. Oh, whoa. <laughs> yes, a little fun fact for any cinephiles out there. A little knowledge from me to you. Yeah. He directed yeah. wasn't, Carrie. wasn't funny, but it was interesting, that's for yeah. sure. Well, you know, you do the funny stuff. I do the interesting stuff for this podcast. You know, that's why we're <laughs> such a dynamic mix, you and I, so... <laughs> He thought he was watching her, but she was watching him. He thought he was trespassing, but he was invited. He knew he had gone too far. He couldn't stop. He saw exactly what she wanted him to see. Brian De Palma, the modern master of suspense, invites you to witness a seduction, a mystery, a murder. Body Double. You can't believe everything you see. Body Double, 1984, directed by Brian De Palma. You can't believe everything you see. Ooh, mama. How do you feel about that tag? Exciting. Horny. Turned on. Let me sit down. Mrs. De Palma, can you wait in the lobby? We may need you. (laughs) (laughs) After losing an acting role and his girlfriend, Jake Scully finally catches a break. He gets offered a gig house-sitting in the Hollywood Hills. While peering through the beautiful home's telescope one night, he spies a gorgeous blonde dancing in her window. But when he witnesses the girl's murder, 
It leads Scully through the netherworld of the adult entertainment industry on a search for answers, with porn actress Holly Body as his guide. Oh, mama. That's some heady stuff there, dude. Truly. Heady, heady, heady stuff. Now, I want to know from you, you'd seen this movie, I had not. What were your initial thoughts when you saw this yeah. movie? Yeah. I had only seen this movie for the first time last year as well uh, because similar reasons that you had put it off as well. As much as I do love De Palma, um, sometimes these grubbier movies, they can just be too much trash or too too provocative in the wrong way. And so I put Body, Body Double off because it had like a controversial reception that I'd known about for a long time. Uh, but I found my letterbox review from last year when I first saw it. And I think I capture it pretty well. I simply adore that the Palmer channels Hitchcock's language of suspense with impeccable technical prowess, but replaces the chaste moments of horny with full-on smutty porno voyeurism. And it is never more apparent than this B-movie grub stuff. <laughs> That's really well said. <laughs> it's very true because in Rear Window, there's some implied smut. Mm. Yes. You know, like there's the whole, there's the, the girl across the road, the torso, is that her name? Yeah, the torso, right? Much like Holly Body. Holly Body, yeah, very similar. And that's imp- it's implied that he pervs on her. Mm. This movie just takes that one, you know, brief moment and stretches it out for two hours, basically. Yeah. De Palma loves to stretch it out. Um, The interesting thing as well Because, you know, both these movies are so much about voyeurism And, like, Mm. the way that Hitchcock uses it Is, like you say as well Is an element to it is perving Another element to it is curiosity and boredom and imagination And those are all in play here And you kind of think, like Is voyeurism inherent to De Palma's filmography and to his thematic oeuvre, or is it uh, something that is because he is an acolyte or student of Hitchcock? Is that why it's important Mm. to it? And I have an answer for you, because I love De Palma so much. A couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, um, at the Sydney Underground Film Festival, a film premiered there called The Palmer, which is like a thing that's very in fashion these days, where there is a long, full, incredibly well-made feature-length film that is a documentary chronicle where it is based on interviews with a filmmaker going through their entire filmography. There's been one yeah. about William Friedkin. There's been one about Sidney Lumet. Agnes Varda pretty much made her own ones about that. But this one is directed by, do you know who made it? Is it Noah Baumbach? Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow's brother. Cool, yeah, yeah. I remember hearing about it at the time. So is it based off archival uh, interview footage of De Palma and stuff like that? No, it's all new interview. Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow interview him. And uh, it's the interview is so good. The way that he talks about all his work, watching that movie reawoken every feeling I had about why I love De Palma and how fucking beyond anything, his movies are extremely cool. And they're these cool genre studies and stuff. And just watching that movie alone, I like had to like go home on Amazon and just ordered all his movies I didn't own, basically. Just the big ones that I was missing and want to catch up with. But it's also really good 
in interview aspect in getting into his psychology as an artist and what kind of like inspires him and his relationship with voyeurism comes up a lot and very early so his relationship with voyeurism is probably best displayed cinematically in Dressed to Kill and literally in the documentary that I'm talking about he had a very bad relationship with his father and a very close relationship with his mother and he literally used to follow his father and document his adulterous affairs Oh my god. So he's like, so many of his films like this, Blowout, Dressed to Kill especially, they all follow this idea of voyeurism and the idea of perspective and spying and like, Mm. you know, espionage in some way. And it all kind of links back to this like childhood experience of his. That's so sad to hear, Mm. first of all, but also one of the coolest origin stories I could ever mm. imagine for a filmmaker. Exactly. I used to follow my dad around like a fucking sleuth and and document his affairs, his multiple affairs he was having on my mother. That is, oh, God, I wish my dad had affairs so I could have done that <laughs> shit. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, but it's, oh, so, it's so, like, incredible to just go, oh, my God, now I know why all his movies are like this, why they're yeah. all like this weird psychosexual smuttiness and trashiness and, like, the idea of perving is, like, such a huge... Like, it's in almost every single one of his movies feels, like, perverted, except for maybe The Untouchables. That's the only yeah, one. But, yeah, but you know what? I think that um, it's there in all of them because mm. he has this, like, love affair... With the long lens. Mm. He's obsessed with shooting from a long lens from... it's. It feels like most of his films feature a big set piece where the action is filmed from like yep. 600 metres away yes. on a long lens that pulls out slowly or pushes in slowly on mm. action. Untouchables has those moments. Absolutely. Mission Impossible definitely does. This one definitely does. That ties into me with the idea of spying because so Mm. many of his big, exciting moments have a feeling of, I shouldn't be watching this. Yes. I'm I'm too far away from the action, but I'm allowed to see it for some reason. It's it's really cool. It's like the best thing about his work for me is that Mm. you always feel engaged in it because you always feel like you're not supposed to be there. Man, you fucking nailed it because, like, watching this movie in the context that we're doing it as well and the way you just put it, it makes you realize how special this is together because it's a rear window movie made by a guy who fucking lived within rear window, a guy who's all about that perspective. Everything's been leading up to this film that basically did nothing for his career. Yeah, right. It was a bit of a flop, right? It came out after Scarface... It came out after a fucking iconic three-movie run of Dress to Kill, Blowout, then Scarface, who are all big movies, or at least huge cult movies now. Uh, Like, Scarface, has there ever been a bigger cult movie than that? Well, I mean, I'm looking at you on FaceTime right now, Mm. and you've got the poster right behind you up on the wall. I've also got an Instagram filter on that just makes me look half black, half white, much like the Scarface poster. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's never been a movie like that. I've also got a TV screen that's an iPad glued to a wall playing Scarface 24-7. I love that you have the um, framed mountain of cocaine up mm. on the wall as well. I don't know yeah. how they did it. looks like it's plaster of Paris or something, but yeah. it's designed to look like a big mountain of cocaine and there's some bullet 
casings. There's some bullet casings right it. behind me. Yeah, in the poster. So I bought it direct from a frame shop. They can you go to a frame shop. Every single one of them. <laughs> Every single frame shop has a poster of Scarface or The Sopranos. Yep. That, that has a, that's a mounted piece of memorabilia with bullet casings, perhaps a Beretta, a little bit of Coke, an American dollar bill. And then it just has maybe one film cell, a little film cell in there. That's hey, my can favorite tell- of, mer- of merch. Yeah, tell it. Can you I- can tell it. Can I tell you something that's off topic? I'm not going to tell that story, the one that you think I'm going to tell. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to tell that. This is slightly off topic, but mm. it's on the topic of mounted merch. Yeah. Um, the com- the Australian comedian Chris Franklin. Mm-hmm. One of the greats. the bloke. The bloke. He had a number one single back in the 90s, mm. I think, or early 2000s. Uh, that went gold and platinum in the country and it got mounted and framed with like the gold records mm-hmm. and instead of having like a, a gun or some bullet casings or fake cocaine, yeah. it had packets of cigarettes <laughs> mounted in there and I did a gig with Chris Franklin once and he was yeah. telling me that at his lowest point, this is a story he's told many times, so it's not telling tales out of school, mm. at his lowest point, he smashed the glass frame and smoked the mounted cigarettes from his gold and platinum merch. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's a story he's told a lot. Do he's you told think on that, stage. Do you think there's ever been moments in like the Sopranos actors' lives where they've <laughs> smashed open a mounted merch thing and, yeah. I don't know, got the bullet casings out or like a, Stephen a sandwich from Satriales? <laughs> He's smashing up his emergency Satrial sandwich that's held in a merch in a giant merch frame. <laughs> oh no, Junior, I gotta have it. I gotta have it, Junior. <laughs> oh god. So anyway, that's what you've got up in Blu-ray mm, Studios. Absolutely, I've gotta have it up there. I absolutely love it. So he's off this iconic three movie run. All these have become cult classics or bigger in Scarface's uh, example. And then he he makes this. He also wrote this movie. He co-wrote Dress to Kill and Blowout. Scarface was written by Oliver Stone. This is one that he also co-wrote. And um, I think it is him, this three-movie run that he wrote, this is him really exploring that idea of voyeurism, really mm. exploring it. Like, you know, of course, Dress to Kill is his ode to Psycho, if you will. I think that's his closest movie to Psycho for obvious reasons, but I will not spoil them if you've not seen Dress to Kill. Blowout is Hitchcock and also a little bit of Rewindow, and but mm. a lot of Blowout, uh, the Michelangelo Antonioni film. And then mm-hmm. I'd say this one is obviously Rewindow, but the other movie it blends it with that I didn't tell you about because I knew you love it so much and I want mm-hmm. to hear your thoughts about it as well is what other movie? Vertigo. Hello, mm. hello. <laughs> The U2 classic. (laughs) Un, dos, tres, catorce. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so vertigo. I'm so glad you didn't tell me that because that was a nice surprise. Even at the the start of the film, the movie begins... This is a circular film. The movie begins with our main character, the actor, on set... In a fake grave, he's on a vampire film, 
it's a B shitty underground like vampire movie horror movie and he has a panic attack in his coffin and you know we kind of get the idea that maybe he's claustrophobic I still it took me 50 55 minutes before I realized that that was going to be the driving point of this film which is at the midpoint of this movie basically it switches from being a passive like rear window observer movie to an out and out vertigo riff but instead of being afraid of heights this guy's terrified to the point of incapacitation by tight spaces and once that happened at around the halfway point I was like, oh, dude, this movie rules. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was on the fence, but this movie fucking rules now. It's yeah, just, it rips. It rips, man. It becomes something new. It's like an exciting riff on um, on the whole Vertigo thing because there's way more likelihood that you're going to find yourself in an elevator or a tunnel or like a crowded room than you are going to be on the top of a building or something like yeah. that. And so as well, it was- it's like the body double element is also not ju- is also like that idea of vertigo, where he's on this chase trying to find out the identity of someone as well. Yeah, I loved that. I loved that. Once all the mystery elements started coming into play as well, like potentially these people aren't who they say they are, and maybe he's been put in this position to spy on this girl for a reason. Once that mm. all started coming into it, I was like hooked. I loved it. Yeah, I think this is a really cool movie. One thing that we haven't touched on yet is something that I don't really remember until I watched it this time and was surprised by is that I think this movie is a fucking comedy. Like, it's a freaking comedy. It's funny (laughs) the whole way through. And it's almost like De Palma's parody of himself. Like, it takes itself itself very seriously, but also it's got funny characters. It's got jokes. It's got weirdo lines. And I was trying to find like some information about De Palma and comedy. And I remembered this review that Pauline Kael, who's like one of the all-time great film critics ever. If you're not familiar with Pauline Kael, find some stuff on her because she has written some of the best reviews of all time. And this is a review that's always stuck with me. It's her review for The Fury, which is a movie that he made, Brian De Palma made just after Carrie. And she was probably his biggest champion. Like she loved... Uh, Brian De Palma and I think for him as an, a director a filmmaker who makes so many movies that teeter often on the edge of misogyny and many times just openly or not openly but in a weird artistic sense are uh, movies of misogyny or about misogyny and uh, or about misogynistic characters so it was I think very good for him to have a critic like her in his like in his corner and uh, she, the this excerpt compares him to another Hitchcock acolyte, Sir Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. uh, who is. It's a shame that there's not. He doesn't have a rear window parody or riff that we could chuck into this because I think he's really he's in his um, relationship with Hitchcock is also very apparent and open and interesting. Also, a fun little side note: Steven Spielberg in film school did his director's shadowing with Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, on the really? film Topaz, the Topa- the film Topaz, with another film student who also did that was Richard Franklin on the same movie. Man, what the fuck? We've talked about this last time, I mm-hmm. think, but 
that USC film school, it's just absurd. Like, why the fuck? What were we doing over here in Australia? We got to. Yeah. We should have gone to USC, man. We should have gone there. Let I me wish read my you dad this... cheated on my mom, and I wish <laughs> that I went to USC in the 70s. <laughs> All right, let me read you this little excerpt. De Palma is the reverse side of the coin from Spielberg. Close Encounters gives us the comedy of hope, the fury, the comedy of cruelly dashed hope. With Spielberg, what happens is so much better than you dared hope that you have to laugh. With De Palma, it's so much worse than you feared you have to laugh. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. I think that's true. Yeah, you're right because um well she's right. Sorry, you're not right. You just No, no, it. I'll accept it on behalf of Miss Pauline Kale. Thank you so much. <laughs> because this movie has some very funny moments in it, but they're always tied up with darkness. There's never mm. there's never it's never levity. It's always you're laughing because you didn't expect to laugh in this horrific moment. Mm. There was a there was a moment that happens sort of towards the midpoint of the film where, spoilers, the woman that he's been spying on gets murdered. Mm. And he tries to stop it and it's very tense and he's running to her house and you know, like it's it's actually a beautifully made moment of suspense. Mm. She the way she gets killed has so many like fuck ups in it. Yeah. Like, the guy tries to kill her with a drill, but then the drill gets pulled out of the wall. And it's also and then- not, like, a little hand drill. Like, this is this is like a minigun. Like, it's humongous. It's a huge drill. And also, he's wearing, like, a see-through mesh shirt mm, as well, yeah. so you can see his nips the whole time. <laughs> and then she tries to run away, but she trips over the bed, and then mm. he... He's trying to, like, drill down on top of her and she's keeping him away with her legs and it's all kind of, like, a little bit bumbly and funny, but then mm. he drills straight through her and through the floor and blood starts running through the floor into mm. the, like, ground store, ground floor below. And it's so gory and so over the top, but also it's like a farce. It's, like, yeah. outrageous. It's really goofy and weird. I started laughing. I was, I was like, come yeah. on, are you serious? I think that's that Pauline Kale quote where it's so yeah. cruel and over the top that all you can do is laugh at it because how can you take that seriously? <laughs> and especially it's the evolution of everything he was doing. The last three films that we talked about, they were all challenged for being too sexual or too mm. grotesque by mm. the classification board, like getting X ratings, like he had to go back with Scarface like three times with different cuts of the movie and it's still got an X or R rating. And um, it's the evolution of all those things. Like Scarface, he there's a scene where a guy gets dismembered with a chainsaw. Mm. So he's upping it in a way that is not... It's more grotesque, but it's also ridiculous that there's a giant like six-foot-long drill. Also, could there be any less subtle metaphor in mm. all of cinema than this woman who has only been sexualized this entire film. Literally. She's a dancer in the window. Yeah, uh, getting literally like drilled to death, being penetrated by this giant phallic drill while the guy helplessly watches. Like he's impotent to stop it, you know? Like it's it's the most like unsubtle metaphor on impotence and voyeurism and Mm. the whole movie is about a man who can't perform yes literally he's a shit actor like he's a he's a shit actor actor who can't can't complete the scene 
can't comp- can't perform. Mm-hmm. And all the only way he feels power is by watching women and watching people. And he tries to save her, but he can't stop her from being like drilled by this giant fucking dick. And then at the end, he has to learn how to perform. It's basically a movie about how to come. Oh my god, dude! It so is, and it's the big set piece it, of the movie, Alexi. Yes, the big set piece of a movie is all of that. It's like, oh my god, it's so dis- it's so. He's so he's a psychological director. Like all of this is his own like neuroses, and he makes it into like this incredible like thriller that's funny and weird. And I love that lead performance this time now watching the movie because it's this actor called Craig Wasson who I'm not too familiar with. He's done a few other notable films, but he is this really good looking man. But he's basically playing against his looks in this entire film because he's like a kind Mm. of like classical movie star look, matinee idol from the 1940s. Really, like not like someone who's incredibly masculine but has that good movie star looks. And he's Mm. playing against that, playing like this fucking, like he is dressed like Woody Allen the entire movie. (laughs) Like he's wearing like a light denim shirt, chinos, and like a corduroy jacket. That's his look throughout most of the movie. He's so nebbish and meek, and there's this level of purpose behind his, like, purposely bad acting that makes his failure as a professional actor and him bask in this awkwardness. And it, it makes, like, the way that he begins his career as a voyeur, it's so repulsively innocent the way that he's staring Mm. at her that it feels gross because he's like this he's a man it's not like a boy he's a fucking man staring at this woman and the innocence of it is so repulsive and I love that it's underscored by this really sweet and charming almost inspirational music by Pina Donaggio that is so weird what a weird choice but it just Mm. works for who this character is yeah that music really threw me off the first time he spies on her because it goes for a really long time. It's probably like mm. a, th- a three-minute sequence that yeah. just cuts between this long lens shot of this woman dancing naked through a window. You can barely see her mm-hmm. face. Um, all you can really see is her body. Mm. And it cuts between They make that a point and- of going like, did you see her face? He's like, no, I didn't. Oh, you got her. You sh- I wish you saw it. She's a real knockout. And that's yeah. a real... That's like a little hang-on point for the rest of the movie. But then, like, it, every time it cuts back to the guy, like, looking up from the telescope in mm. shock, and there's this really bright kind of, like, lovely score underneath mm. it. It does feel like... I kept watching it being like, am I supposed to like this guy? Like, he's he's literally a peeping Tom, but the yeah. music and the cinematography and the performance is telling me that this is a hero moment. Like, yeah. this is him... Finding himself, sort yeah. of thing. It's, it is. It is like a hero moment. It's like a freaking John Williams, like little hero score coming in. Those little twinklings that this guy's <laughs> onto great things. It's him staring through a telescope at a woman, basically masturbating. Yeah, it's crazy. But then, like, so it took me a while to get into it because of that, because mm. that was happening, and I was just like, man, this is icky. But then at that, like I mentioned, you know, around like 40 minutes, 50 minutes Mm. was when I really locked into the movie and I kind of realized that it was, that was the point. Like it was sort of satirizing this idea of, I don't know, porn, I guess, or like the Mm. way that, the way that culture, especially in the eighties, I guess, had really prioritized like 
sex and the body mm. and like watching porn on TV, late night porno shit, mm. and you know the mo- the fake porno movie in it is called Holly Does Hollywood, which is obviously ripping on Debbie Does Dallas and all that kind of stuff, and and uh, Deep Throat, and it feels like it's really like saying. Mm, very mixed things about that culture. It's mm. saying like this is undeniable. It's part of our culture. We have to accept it. But also, isn't it fucking gross that we all just mm. watch porn all the time and yeah. we don't even think about who these people are? Oh man, maybe let's take a little break and then dive straight back into that point. Meow, 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 meow. <laughs> We're taking a little break here for a moment, cats and kittens, to plug a very special Total Reboot Presents miniseries called Why is Cats? Why is Cats is a new podcast hosted by myself, Cameron James, and our good friend, Ben Elwood, where we watched the movie Cats a bunch of times and we interview a wide variety of people all about it. Alexi, we even interviewed you. You guys interviewed the absolute fuck out of me for this podcast. It was so <laughs> much fun. It's a really fun mini-series that you and Ben Elwood are putting together. Uh, it's going to be about six or seven episodes, you say? Yeah, yeah. It's a short little thing, but we um, we go deep. You know, We started mm. by watching it by ourselves. Then, of course, we brought you in mm-hmm. for this current episode that's out now. And then we go deeper and deeper into the Jellicle world. We interview comedians, Broadway stars, musical theatre actors, academics, visual effects artists, and a couple of people that worked wow. on the film itself. Wow, wow, All wow. to get to the bottom of why this movie was a failure, why it even exists, and what the fuck is it? Oh, before we have a listen to a bit of the trailer, I just want to state for the record, that you are doing this with an incredible amount of love. You are obsessed with this movie in a very positive and loving way. Big time, big time. I went in wanting to hate watch it, Mm -hmm. but couldn't because it's the most unique film that I've seen in like 15 years. There's been nothing like this. (laughs) And I just had to admire it. There's, There's no way around it. You can say it sucks if you want, but you have to admire that it's... It's its own thing and there's nothing like it. I knew it was going to be bad, right? But I thought it would be funny bad. Hi, I'm Cameron James from the movie podcast Total Reboot. But it wasn't. It was the sign of the collapsing civilization around us. Welcome to my latest freaking obsession. I think Cats is about... So I think there's a whole bunch of cats who all hang out together called Jellicles. About the Jellicle universe. They're, they're a gang. Who get together in an alleyway. It's about cats. I couldn't tell you the plot. To like sing their songs with each other. They do a little dance. Oh, God. For the chance to die. That's the whole deal. Why does it exists. That's what we're trying to figure out. Join me and my good friend Ben Elwood on this jellical journey. Why is Cats coming soon to the Sans Pants Radio Network. So Cameron, it's I think about time that we talk about the titular character of this movie. And now when I say titular, I of course mean the body double herself, Melanie Griffith. I do not mean the porno parody of Dracula, where a vampire is much like the beginning of this movie, which is also a movie that is porno meets vampires. This is the titular movie, if there ever was one. Absolutely. You you don't mean the titular franchise, which was huge in the 80s, around the era that this Mm -hmm. film came out. 
starring yeah. a um, very hypersexual vampire named Titular who has fangs for nipples. Yes. When you and say she sucks, bl- she sucks men dry. Yeah, she sucks men dry. When you say titular, you mean titular, um, mm-hmm. as in the title role of this film. The title role of this film, body double herself, Melanie Griffith. And this is, uh, I would say, a film around this time with something wild, where she starts to break out as a star, a, a star, not just a child actor, but a true star. And I think she is really freaking great in this movie. I think that her relationship with this guy is really interesting. And I think what you were saying before about how it's this relationship to pornography um, in this movie because she plays a porn star that is hired. Oh, is that spoilers to say? No, no, no. I mean, we're halfway through the episode, so. Okay, sure. Well, you know, spoilers for this. She has is someone who is hired to be the body double in this movie. And the first time we meet her, we see her on TV, and we see uh, Craig Wasson putting it together. Jake Scully. Jake Scully. Isn't that Avatar's name? I think his name is... Yeah, I think it is Jake... No, it's Jake Sully. (laughs) Oh, Jake Sully. Jake Sully Sully Sullenberger. (laughs) Jake Sully Sullenberger, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But uh, he sees her on the TV uh, doing her her signature sexy dance move and he puts two and two together and he's like, hang on a second. Like, I've seen sorry, this before. Sorry, sorry, carry the two. I think that's the same girl. <laughs> that might just be the same girl. <laughs> I gotta go investigate this. I gotta go do as an out of work actor with a no day job, I gotta go watch his freaking porno. Yeah, so that was the movie that was the point in the movie where it kind of switches to vertigo mode where mm. he stops being an observer and he starts like kind of like becoming a detective i guess like he yeah he puts on this persona of a sleazy porn producer Ugh. actor type and he it's so funny because he's like this meek guy the entire time wearing corduroy yeah. and tweed type shit and then he slicks back his hair and begins every sentence with hey and wears a red leather jacket it's so funny to just like see this guy who's totally within his shell, this impotent guy, have to be macho. I think it's so good. And dare I say it, it's the it's the best acting the guy does. Mm. And it's not good. <laughs> the perform his performance in the movie is good, but whenever he's acting in the film, he's a bad actor. And I think that is something to- good to note because it's very hard to do that. Yeah, yeah, he's re- he's a very talented guy. This guy. So I love this part of the movie because he has to like embed himself in the porn world and mm. they choose to do it in the most um, surreal, absurd way imaginable. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, the only comparison <laughs> is, you know, in Vertigo when there's that bizarre Salvador Dali kind of like dream yeah. sequence. I guess this is that movie's, this is this movie's attempt at that. It's a mm. surreal, almost dreamlike music video, right? It's become it's when this movie starts dripping into fantasy, which it does quite often after this point and a little bit before it, but when it truly starts in living in his fantasy world as well. And it, I mean, we teased so it can in you, our can first. Can you explain? Yeah. 
Explain what happens, because this, even though you teased it to me, I was not prepared for what happened. You didn't believe how honest I was being when I said there is literally, in the middle of this movie, a three-minute full music video to the Frankie Goes to Hollywood song, Relax, which we also best known for being the song that ignites the power within uh, Zoolander to kill the Malaysian Prime Minister. Yeah, it's, it's Zoolander's sleeper cell trigger. <laughs> it's his wake up call song. Yeah, uh, and you didn't, you didn't, did you, did you know how literal I was being that that's what happens in the middle of this movie? I think in my head, I thought it was going to be like in Rocky Four mm. when there's a James Brown performance in the middle of the movie, <laughs> where James Brown um, plays Living in America yeah. in full. Yeah. For five minutes. For five minutes. So I, I, I thought that it was going to be at a club and he's like tracking the girl through the club mm. in slow motion and the, and Frankie goes to Hollywood are playing on stage for mm. the whole song. I did not realise that what I was going to get was literally a music video where people are lip syncing to the song and there's choreographed dance mm. going on around them. And our character is wearing like an exaggerated version of his own costume. Yeah, with big Woody and Allen glasses. Yeah, it's like, it's truly, it's truly bizarre. But it's also a way to, for us to, it's a way of the Palmer to artistically interpret cinematically a pornographic shoot. So it's like, it looks like a music video, it looks like a very new wave MTV style music video, but it's meant to symbolize what is happening is that he is fucking her in a porno, basically. Yeah, yeah. And the way this kind of came about uh, in, the, in blending reality and fantasy is because at this time, Brian De Palma was watching a lot of music videos on MTV because he was writing a freaking Jim Morrison biopic that never happened. <laughs> he would later go on to be his Scarface collaborator Oliver Stone's big project with um, uh, The Doors The Doors, Val Kilmer, Valerie Kilmer, right? Yeah, 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 it sucks God, I hate that movie So this gave him the idea of filming the porno production as a new wave music video He was introduced, introduced to Frankie Goes to Hollywood Who were big fans of his work already So it was also filmed as a kind of promotion So the music video could also be aired on MTV but by the nature of this clip, as soon as they saw it, that plan was quashed. And it is not the official music video because it's too <laughs> horny, too gross for TV. <laughs> hey, can I also just point out that the main hook of this song is relax, don't do it when you want to go through mm. it. Relax, don't do it when you want to come. Mm. Once again, pointing out to me that that is what this entire movie is about. Yeah. It's about a man who cannot perform, who has to learn how to come. And he needs to learn how to relax because he gets high stress in traumatic scenarios involving claustrophobia. So do you think, because this, this is where it sort of starts becoming a bit surreal mm. and whatnot. Do you think that there's a bit of a time jump in this movie where he kind of becomes embedded in the porn world for like longer than it seems in the film. I think it's hard to say. Like you say, this is 
this is when it stops being literal. The movie stops being literal at this point and delves into fantasy interpretation and stuff. And it, it would make sense if it was like, oh, yeah, he did some porno stuff for a while with this lady because I think the front end of this movie being the rear window uh, riff is heavy. It's like it's top loaded, this film, where it is weird that we don't, for a full hour, get into the real text of this movie, which is him with Melanie Griffith, which is shorter than the first half of the film. And mm. um, it's. I think it's a weird way to make that transition, but it is also so stunning like when they're spinning around doing this kiss and like this this very sensual ghost-like movement where he's behind her and caressing her and it starts cut the camera's doing this amazing 360 around them and then it starts cutting with footage of him and the original person that he was vo- he was spying on who they did have this embrace at the beach when he stopped the guy that would eventually kill her taking her handbag it is all so artistically done and beautiful and surreal for what is a grubby porno movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fucking insane. Like, I think at about this point in the movie, I remember just... And look, I only watched this like an hour ago. Mm. Like, I just finished You're fresh off it. it. Like You're an fresh. Hour so I'm fresh off it. But there was, you know, a point sort of sitting there watching this this film and I was just going, okay, this... This is one of the more batshit movies I've ever seen, I think. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's just no there's no way to really reckon with it. It's so... The first half of the movie is almost like a straight-up Hitchcock riff. Mm-hmm. The second half of the movie is so surreal mm. and almost Lynchian in its, like, metatextuality and its... um riffing on the differences between dream and reality and fantasy mm-hmm. and and porn that you just can't even you can't even follow a story mm. for the last 40 minutes you just go okay i guess he's in the porn industry now or maybe this is a dream or maybe mm. um the whole thing has been a dream and maybe all of this is a fantasy that happened in his panic attack on set at the beginning yeah. of the movie there's no real answer and there's no way of knowing what you're supposed to take away yeah. from this movie. And especially when like the climax of this movie is this great sequence where Melanie Griffith's character is being buried uh, by uh, someone who we learn to be the villain this entire time. Uh, the actor is Greg Henry, G R E. Double G Henry. Uh, double G. You rarely see a double G, Greg. Never see a double G, Greg. He might be the only one. Yeah, I don't like it. I love it. Um, I think it's exciting and weird. And it's quirky. But he's a frequent Brian De Palma collaborator. He's in Scarface. He's in The Black Dahlia. He's in a bunch of other ones. Uh, and I think this is his most main role where he is like this villain. I think he's fabulous in this movie. You realize that he's the cartoon hand of the Godfather puppeteering the whole thing the whole freaking time. And he, he um, <laughs> in this sequence where he's like fighting him and you realize that spoilers, I'm going to spoil this movie. If you want to watch it, watch it again. Watch it now, baby. Pause us. Come back to us later. Uh, and we see him rip the the rip the mask and it's been him as this uh 
strange mesh t-shirt long haired wearing guy with this craggly <laughs> face that shot of when he's pulling the mask down is so good because it's not like you know having seen the movie before I could tell that it had been him the entire time you know yeah I could I could tell and I've never seen it yeah it's and I also could tell that it was going to be like um, movie special effects mm. mask that he was wearing and because no one looks of, like that one, yeah, and once you start, like, noticing it, mm. it starts to piss you off. Mm. Because you're like, come on, hide it a little bit more. Yeah. You know? Like, make it make it more of a mystery. But I but think when he rips that mask and you see half it looks of it, cool. it looks so cool. Yeah, really cool. I, I love that. And That's a, it's, it, it's almost worth it. Like, mm. I was kind of like, this thing, this big reveal didn't land for me, but the visual mm. of the reveal was, like, fucking awesome. Yeah, and I think De Palma does this cool thing earlier in the movie when we start seeing Craig Wasson's character, Jake Scully, start putting it together. And he he does this cool trick where he... Um, he replays parts of the movie. He also does it in Mission Impossible. It's the same thing that he does where he yeah. replays parts of the movie from his, uh, from Craig Wasson's perspective again, but it's wrong and changed to trick the audience into believing uh, his memories rather than truth and facts. So he starts putting things together somewhat correctly, but also not, not 100% accurate and right, where he's getting some details wrong. It's such an interesting way to do it. And then we've got that awesome sequence where in the middle of him being buried, he flashes back and like relives this another false moment, which is him performing in the film where he's also uh, in a coffin being buried as this vampire. And it's going to be him breaking through in his performance. And it's so cool the way this movie blends that fantasy with his real life heroic moment in the movie. Yeah, I, I did like that a lot, but I, I was left with questions. You know, I, I didn't. I guess that's the point of these movies, and particularly of Brian De Palma's movies in this era, is that he didn't want to give you just a, a neo noir mm. thriller. He wanted to give you something that you could walk away from being like, "What was that? Mm. Was that real? Was that a dream?" Um, and I guess it's stuff like that that is the reason it has a legacy and maybe has been reappraised in the last mm. few years as well. I know it was a bit of a bomb at the time and it kind of put him in, yeah. I guess, an equivalent of director jail. <laughs> um, Can I tell you, in the De Palma documentary, almost every time after they talk about what an artistic achievement the movie is and stuff, he's talking about it, it always almost ends, it almost always ends with him talking directly to Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow going like, yeah, after the press screening, my the producer contacted me saying, you're going to be torn apart for this one. <laughs> <laughs> Every single time, and this one more so than the rest, where he's like, yeah, they're going to tear you apart for this one. Yeah, and I can see why they would have. Like, it's it's outrageous. It's so fucking absurd. Even by today's standards, it's not it's not something you could just put on and watch at any time. It's so fucking its own thing, but but I think maybe that's why I liked it. If it was just a straight neo noir like um, Disturbia by DJ Wicker Wicker Caruso, thank you so much for <laughs> really putting your whole heart into that performance <laughs> of saying his name correctly. I just don't. I don't think those kind of movies have legacy, but 
but this one I think will and does because it's so mm. it's so unique. He's literally inviting you to feel and understand his psychology. Mm. I think that's what makes him a great auteur. It's one of the things that makes many auteurs great and some of them not so great. I'm thinking about Mel Gibson, mm. <laughs> um, where, where he, he's inviting you to experience not just his perspective, but his fucking thoughts and his psychology in an artistic interpretation. Um, one of the other things I think before we start wrapping this up that I think is worth noting and what makes this movie kind of cool as well is that this is a very L.A. movie and he wanted to capture L.A. in a different way than it had been seen before. He was the first person to shoot in that walk-in mall where mm. there's this that that entire long sequence of him tracking the original uh uh, the original person down, following her through this mall and the beach. No one had shot there. That uh, that final uh, encounter, that climax of the aqueduct, no one ever shot there. His location manager found that. And also, a majority of this movie is shot and set in one of Los Angeles' most unique homes ever, the Chemosphere House, yeah. uh, which is designed by John Lautner in 1960. I think it had been used in a couple of things or appeared in uh, uh, in the TV show The Outer Limits. Uh, but this is its most notable one. Then it would later appear or be, uh, be parodied in Charlie's Angels mm. as Sam Rockwell's home and then in the movie Tomorrowland starring George Clooney. But this is like oh, the most... Oh, there's one more. There's another one you're missing. Um, Troy McClure's house in The Simpsons oh episode... Gosh. A Fish Called Selma is of course. legit this house. It's exactly this house. It's got the rotating bed, doesn't the it? The rotating bed. It's got the fish tanks in the wall, the embedded stereos, the whole mm. like 360 UFO style yep. hexagonal. Yeah, all I could think of was Troy McClure when I was watching this. Totally. And it's so well done and such an exciting location for this as that rear window thing because it is just one big wide open space. It's like the most gourmet studio apartment that's ever existed, but it is a <laughs> studio apartment. And so you get the idea of the geography in there, you get the idea of the world that he's living in. And this is just a place that he's house sitting and he he thrives there. He becomes a new sexy man from it. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty jealous of that apartment, I gotta admit. Oh there's man, something I would about love that, to like, live there. 80s LA, like sort of space agey, mm. excess, excessive, like stereo systems built into walls. I just yes. fucking love it. It's so slimy. Every surface in the 80s in LA seems like it's designed to have Coke poured on it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's all that black glass. Yeah. And it's also like those modern texts being applied to like that mid-century look. Like, you know, you see it in Mad Men where they've got like conversation pits a lot. I'd, I'd kill to have a conversation oh, pit. Oh, God. If I had a fucking step in the middle of my apartment, I would freaking die. I'd die every day of joy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I pray that never happens to you because I'll have to get a body double to replace you here on... Uh... <laughs> On Total Reboot. Oh, man. Blu-ray Studios is going to get a renovation, I'll tell you that. Going to put a freaking step right in the middle of it. <laughs> man, I really like this movie. I'm glad we watched it. I'm glad we added it to the Stuck mm. Indoors Film Festival. 
Me too. And I just had a freaking brainwave moment that we've not brought up. And I'm, it's crazy we didn't bring it up in the last episode. That it is interesting that Brian De Palma has cast Melanie Griffith in this movie as she is the descendant of one of Hitchcock's iconic blondes, Tippi Hedren. Of who, course. of course, is in The Birds and Marnie. And, of course, That's the last right. movie we talked about, Richard Franklin's Road Games, we've got Jamie Lee Curtis, who is cast similarly in that movie and in freaking Halloween, where she is the daughter of Janet Lee. That's right. It's such a stunt casting move from both those directors, but... Mm. Uh, I have zero, I, zero problems with it. I think it's Absolutely. awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, I think it's fucking cool. Dude, Normally I a stunt cast my move like that makes them, me dude. roll my eyes, but I, I fucking mm. liked it. Uh, it's so cool. I think I think it just shows that these guys are freaking nerds, dude. They are, dude. They, they would have a podcast if they were around now and they didn't go to USC. You know, if they just went to afters and Newcastle Uni, they'd just have a podcast. <laughs> Richard Franklin and 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 Brian the Palmer just talking in their very low key manner. Do you reckon it would be hornier than our podcast? Oh, it would be it would be hornier, but in a less overt sense. Like you'd be listening to it and you'd go like, oh, 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 because they're not directly talking about it, or they're using weird language. They say the word creature and stuff like that. <laughs> and I also love Dennis Franz's cameo as Brian De Palma. Yeah, basically playing De Palma, right? He's yeah. dressed like him. He talks like him. They're good friends, and it's I guess why he's doing a small role in this movie. Yeah, that was cool too. Man, thanks for thanks for making me watch this. <laughs> oh man, my pleasure. It, the the silver lining of the world that we're living in right now as film podcasters that specifically mm. talk about fucking reboots and remakes is that we have not had to cover any of the ones that were scheduled to be in cinema at the moment and we could do a mini series that we've talked about doing forever. That's true. And there's even some that we missed in this. Like we, I think we briefly mentioned the Rear Window remake with Christopher Reeve, but there's some other ones that are kind of riffs on this too. Yeah, there's a movie called Silver by Philip Noyce, starring Sharon Stone and one of the Baldwin Noyce. brothers. It's a Noyce movie by a Noyce director, a Noyce Aussie bloke, um, who we've talked about on almost every episode of this series as well with uh, his movie Dead Calm being a big yeah. Hitchcock riff. But Silver is one that's more in the vein of Rear Window. It's actually not called Silver. It's called Sliver. Sliver. Not Silver. Sliver. I fucked up. Of course, our friend Maria Lewis, who's been listening to this miniseries with an immense amount of joy, has messaged me saying that the New Zealand film Housebound, which is a horror film, also has that closed-in feeling like Disturbia as well. I've had that on my watch list for years and I haven't seen it. Um, I guess it's not exactly it, but I guess Panic Room has that trapped-in feeling as well, and Finch is another Hitchcock guy as well in the way that he plays with tension. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that movie's fun. I actually rewatched that recently. It, it, it fucking, it's cool, man. It it's cool, freaking man. cool, man. It's one of the cool man movies. If you're a cool it's man, cool you'll man watch for it for sure. It's cool, man, <laughs> and it has Joker in it. Yeah, it's got freaking Joker in it. It's got Clarice in it. It's got uh, the Last King of Scotland in it. A yeah, lot of famous actors. It's got actors. Twilight in it. Twilight's in it. It's got Dwight Yoakam, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Dwight Yoakam is the star of that movie. Yeah, man. He owns in that film. He's so good in it. So good. Oh, who plays the dad? 
Uh, I don't know. Because I know Al Nicole is the voice on the phone of his new wife. Right. Very cool. Very Who's cool. Who's the dad? I'm imagining Craig T. Nelson for some reason, but I don't know if it's him. <laughs> uh, there's also another movie that a listener of ours, Elia, who's Earth to Elia on Twitter and on Letterboxd, she brought this movie to my attention that I'd never heard of. It's from last year called Number 37. It's a South African movie. And it is, here's a premise of it. A recent paraplegic is given binoculars by his girlfriend when he witnesses a mob killing. He tries to blackmail the killer. Sounds really cool. It's got great reviews. I'm definitely cool. going to try and track that down. Couldn't get to it in time. It was too difficult to get. And also, later this year, there's a freaking new movie coming out called The Woman in the Window. Agoraphobic Dr. Anna Fox, played by Amy Adams, witnesses something she shouldn't while keeping, while keeping tabs on the Russell family, the seemingly picture-perfect clan that lives across the way. I've seen trailers for this. It's a big universal movie. Uh, it's a big studio movie coming to cinemas this year. It is still currently scheduled for a release in May this year, but likely that will get pushed or it will come out digitally. It's directed by Joe Wright. What do I know Joe Wright from? Joe Wright did Atonement. He did That's right. Anna yeah. Karenina, Pride and Prejudice. He did yep. that horrible pan movie. He did Darkest Hour. He did Hannah, The Soloist. I'm interested in this movie because it has a phenomenal cast. It has got Amy Adams, of course, playing the lead, and uh, Julianne Moore and Gary Oldman as the couple across the way. Also got Tracy Letts and White Russell and Anthony Mackie and Brian Tyree Henry, Jennifer Jason Lee. Mm. My God. He's an all-star cast movie. Yeah, that's a good cast. Um, and also, I think that it's interesting because it uh, it does something that I was thinking about. when I was, I was going to pose the question to you in what would you like to see in another riff on Rewindow? And for mm. me, thinking about that, I was like, a female perspective would be something, especially because all the movies we've talked about, especially this one, have been very leery from that male gaze. And I yeah. thought maybe a female perspective would be something really welcome to it in either a director or a writer or a star. And I, I guess that's what makes me excited in The Woman in the Window, in a sense. Yeah, that's a cool idea. That would be interesting. You're right, because so far everything we've seen has been the man looking at a woman. Mm. Which is like, you know, even when it's commenting on itself, it's still pretty fucking grimy. Yeah. Um, Like this movie was, even though it was making fun of itself in many ways, it was still, it still had three minute long sequences of just Melanie Griffith nude dancing. Mm. Um, So that would be cool. I'd like to see that. Or the only other option would be if they, if someone wants to buy the rights to my story of spying on my neighbours across the way when they had a fight and she threw a bunch of his pornos out the window. <laughs> that would be another yeah. version I would like to see on the big screen. Well, dude, why don't we make that freaking movie? <laughs> <laughs> we can do that one. We can make that one in ISO while we're out of ISO. We can do it. Yeah, that's true. We'll shoot it on iPhone. Yeah, exactly. We shoot in iPhone. We get access to their apartment. But this has been a really fun mini-series to talk about something like some freaking good movies. It has been cool, man. And it's also been cool that um, people have been talking about it in our Patreon group, you mm. know, as well. Like, I'd never seen 
I hadn't seen most of these movies before. Mm. I'd only seen Rear Window. So I'm discovering it along with these guys. And it's been fun having discussions on the Facebook group about it. Mm, And we're getting lots of messages from people that had never seen road games discovering it and saying how fucking good it was. That is awesome because a lot of time on this podcast, as much as we love to be about the discovery of cinema and helping introduce people to movies, a lot of time covering these reboots and remakes, we're either covering some of the biggest movies of all time and some of the biggest flops of all time. Mm. So helping people discover things has been really nice with this one. Hitchcock's movies have been reinterpreted and reimagined many other times. I would love to do some more Hitchcock episodes in the future sometime. Yeah, did we do Psycho? We've done Psycho. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've done. We watch that again. Yeah, I don't want us to watch this <laughs> the Gus Van Sant version again. One of the most traumatic movies. But Rebecca, the only Hitchcock film to win the Best Picture Oscar, uh, is has a formal remake coming out this year as well by Ben Wheatley. Interesting. I I just feel like it's such a ballsy move to to remake one of the most iconic filmmakers films. It'd be like if they if someone started remaking Scorsese, I think it would just be it's almost sacrilegious. It feels weird and wrong like, you know, at least with Gus Van Sant, he's like calling his shot where he's like I'm remaking it and it's an experiment. Ben Wheatley I think is a good director. He did uh, a field in England and Free Fire and High Rise and stuff. So he's an interesting auteur working today. So I am interested to see what he does in adapting this book again. But I like seeing like these interpretations like we did on this one now, where it's been interpretations of the text. Like I would say the closest thing to a interpretation of Rebecca, there's a few, but the best one I would say is Phantom Thread. Have you caught up with that yet? No, I've still never seen it. Oof, man. Maybe if that movie comes out we should do our interpretations on that one too. Okay. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, man. It's a cool man (laughs) movie. Uh, Cameron, what do we have coming up next on the podcast? And next up on the podcast, we're going to do a very fun mini-series, double back-to-back, about one of our favourite comedies, the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Of course, it was remade last year as the movie The Hustle, starring Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. We love that 1980s eight version starring Michael Caine and Steve Martin. Very funny movie, but that in itself is a remake of a Marlon Brando, David Niven starring film called Bedtime Story. So next week we're going to be talking about Bedtime Story starring Marlon Brando and David Niven and Dirty Rotten Scandal starring Steve Martin and Michael Caine. Then the week after that, we're going to be doing The Hustle with Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. If you want to find out what we're doing next on the podcast, follow us on Facebook, Twitter at Total Reboot Pod, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at This Is Alexi, and you're at. I'm at I am Cameron James. I, guess what? I deleted Twitter from my phone. I'm, no way. I'm not. I'm not using it anymore. I find it sickening in isolation. But every now and then, I am dipping in and. Yes, you tweeted stuff, a few so. times today. I've seen you tweeting already today. So you. Got I got the... angry. I got angry today. I was angry about celebrities posting videos from their homes. Mm. Their beautiful homes. Their gorgeous How homes, Ellen. Gorgeous home, Ellen. Horrible politics, though. <laughs> 
heard she's so, yeah, rooming with George W. Bush. She's in self-ISO with the Bushes. Oh, my God. That would be so funny. That would yeah. be so funny if it was revealed she was isolating with the Bushes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a sitcom right there. Uh, and also, if you want to hear more from us, you can head over to patreon.com slash totalreboot and sign up for just five bucks a month and get access to our bonus podcast where we have talked about recently... Art of Darkness, The Simpsons riff on Rear Window. And next week, we've got an episode all about us giving total respect to Elizabeth Moss, the star of The Invisible Man. That's a lot of fun. I really love talking about her, and I really love that episode. So head on over to Patreon, subscribe. It's only five bucks. It would really help us out during this bizarre time where we're not mm-hmm. allowed to perform comedy because of government. <laughs> The government has forbid us from doing comedy, much like the town from Footloose, which has been remade. Maybe we'll do that one day because we're living in a Footloose world right now. (laughs) So thanks for listening. And Alexi, thank you for joining me on Total Reboot Up Late. Oh, baby. It has been scintillating. It has been titillating. And it has been horny sexy.